How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network, with gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Do you know an army mom who deserves an extra special gift this Mother's Day? Order a commemorative brick to be placed in her honor on the grounds of the National Museum of the United States Army in Alexandria, Virginia. You can personalize the brick with the perfect message and even order a replica to have as a keepsake. Order now and her brick will be installed by Veterans Day. Remember mom's service in a way that will last forever. Design your brick and place your order at armyhistory.org. That's armyhistory.org. Welcome to the Switchblade Sisters Social Club, a true crime podcast where two sisters exploit their worst fears for your entertainment. You're welcome. I'm Dee. And I'm Rhonda, and together we are the Sake Sisters. For more information, check out our website at www.switchbladesisterssocialclub.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Switchblade Sisters Social Club. Thanks for listening. Switchblade Sisters Social Club, where two sisters exploit their worst fears for your entertainment. You're welcome. We've got a bonus episode today. I'm Dee, by the way. Oops. And that's my sister, Rhonda. Hi. Hi. You've got one of Chase stickers. I do. I do, because I'm going to be in trouble if that's not there after school. <laughs> oh, and what does your sticker say? Today it says, wow, which is appropriate for today, because... <laughs> We are in awe of what's going to happen today, and I'm not quite sure how Dee managed to pull this one off. I manifested the fuck out of it, and I made it happen. Like, if there's anything that proves that you should just go for what you want, because if you don't try, you never succeed. When I read your charm offensive in the DMs... (laughs) I was good. Comedy at its finest. It reminded me of the days when I put you on uniform dating... And I used to monitor your DMs just to make sure I could supervise your behavior. I never met anyone from that site, FYI. We didn't find many doctors or pilots on there either, for that matter, but... No, it was a cesspit. Wait, we haven't even said... Oh, cut that out, cut that out, cut that out. No, but first of all, just to put it in context, if you didn't read the title of this podcast episode, bonus episode, because today we are interviewing my true crime girl crush, Colin Sutton. I don't know how this is happening today. Honestly, honestly, we couldn't have hoped for a better, high profile, more interesting, more lovable guest. You know, I am very happy with my career so far. I've done a lot of events, met a lot of high profile people, celebrities and so forth. And it's definitely fun. But there's only a handful of people. I think we've talked about this before. There's only a handful of people that I fangirl over. And it's normally not to do with their celebrity status. It's definitely not to do with that. It's to do with their accomplishments, you know? I sound like a nerd. But anyways, I am. 
So there's a handful of people that I just respect so much that I turn into a bit of a blubbering mess around. So this might be one of those occasions, in which case, pick up the slack. <laughs> this guy is just so adorable. And for Dee's birthday, he even recorded a personalized video message for her. Yeah, because it was my 40th recently. And Paul, my partner, asked me, what do you want to do in the evening? And I already had like a gorgeous day planned. And, you know, I had I went to a spa with a friend in the morning had lovely family time during the day. And so when my partner asked me, what do you want to do in the evening? I was like, I would love more than anything on my birthday to sit with a nice glass of wine and watch my murder shows with Colin Sutton. And so I sent a message. We were already in communication. So I sent, a, I sent that to Colin and I said, well, actually, if I'm, if I'm honest, what I would love is a birthday message from the legend that is Colin Sutton. And he delivered. It was just so adorable. It really was. He also said my age must have been a typo. And it's like, oh, no. charmer. He's, I know. He is just so likable, lovable, and endearing. And just such a nice man. If you're still like, who the hell is Colin Sutton after listening to all our episodes? Then where have you been? <laughs> where have you been? Is this the episode you dropped in on? Go back to episode two, <laughs> Levi Belfield. Listen to the Levi Belfield. So basically, he's a former, he's a retired DCI with the police here in London, and he is the one responsible for catching with his team. He always accredits his team as well. They caught the serial killer, Levi Belfield. And, you know, we talk about this case all the time because it was a local case happening when we were of the age of the victim. So it's one that's very close to home. He was also involved with a whole bunch of other murders and also serial rapist Delroy Grant. It's fictionalized in the Martin Clunes Manhunter series. Martin Clunes basically plays our love, Colin Sutton. And he's also written two books on Levi Belfield and Delbert Grant, which are amazing. So yeah, but he's also led 30 murder investigations during his time. And he now does a lot of work with television. He's got his Manhunter series where he covers some of his main cases. So we're very excited to have him join today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? We're over the moon. We are over the moon to have you here. Oh, too silly. <laughs> we don't quite know how we managed to get you here, but we are thrilled and privileged and honoured to have you here. You just ask, that's all. Only the baby that cries gets the milk, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Colin, we're so honoured to have you here. We talk about you in literally every episode. <laughs> You're a factor of our daily lives. That's <laughs> <laughs> the only embarrassing you know. I've listened to it and I, I, I realise I, uh, I do get a mention every now and then. So that's nice of you. Thank you. <laughs> it's an understatement. <laughs> and you know what? We have to thank you because the review that you gave us, it w- just blew our minds. And I think, you know, I've said this before, but I think Deanna deserves a an honorary PhD for her episode and her research and her investigative journalism on that Levi Belfield episode, because it was yeah. first class. It really oh. was. It really was. And, and you know, I'm, I'm on a sort of long car journey and listening to it and I'm thinking, uh, yeah, but you don't get that. Oh, they did get that right. I bet they were, oh, they did. Oh, yes, they did. <laughs> yes, they did. So yeah, it was very well done. So was there anything I got wrong? I don't mind. I don't think there was, actually. I think I'd have noticed it if there was. Um, I, I don't think there was. Well, I mainly quoted you, so. <laughs> so many of the, um, so many of them that have been done have been a little bit sort of superficial. And, and yeah, it's, 
you know, for me always the big thing is is you know what I do with the TV and that sort of thing is to try to concentrate on the uh, the investigation, concentrate on the victims, and not to sort of big up and glorify the people who did it. You hit that mark as well. So, Colin, we we call you Sir Colin in our in our conversations because we really firmly believe that you should be awarded an OBE for your services to this country. And Deanna's so good at making things happen. She managed to get you here. She managed to get Steve Gaskin on on our show. And I think after this podcast, we can definitely get Dee to get the British monarchy on the phone and making an OBE happen. I'll see what I can do. He might be busy this week. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Maybe not this week. (laughs) I'll give him some time to recover from his little party. And then I will start a letter writing campaign. (laughs) We'll get him on the line. We'll get Charles on the line. Well, I want to start with something super fun. I've showed you both some things about this, but we want to launch some Colin Sutton fan club merch. Right. Because, well, we are fans in your fan club and we have, uh, you know, we have now got a bunch of our fans are now your fans because they all love you. And we wanted to launch a series of merch, which will come out soon, hopefully at the time of this episode. And we wanted the proceeds to go to a charity that Colin chose. Colin, would you mind telling us the charity that you chose? Team support, wasn't it? Yeah. I think national victim support is is a good thing to send it to. So I'd be really happy if you do that, Dee. Fantastic. So um, all of the profits for these, um, the Colin Sutton fan club merch will be going to this charity. But I showed you an earlier draft of the um, artwork. I'm going to share with you now um, the final... What do you think? Yeah, I love it. Love it. <laughs> oh, it's a relief. <laughs> so, Colin, it's because our logo is very much Creepy Carnival. Yes. And so we made you Colin the Ringmaster, hence your name on Zoom there. And you're getting one of our mugs whizzed over to you as soon as I can face the post office. So, oh, thank you. That's very kind. So that you can think about us as much as we think about you. <laughs> We get so many messages about you, Colin. We really do. We we had one message saying, Deanna's partner must be very worried about Colin. <laughs> I didn't see that. <laughs> I have a, a very understanding fiancé. Who's our podcast producer, so he hears Deanna, you know, um, <laughs> and all her praise for you. Sometimes I forget that he listens very carefully to everything that we record. <laughs> Hi, Paul. I love you. <laughs> we are so fond of you. We really are. And and I just want to say, I said the same thing to Steve, right? I don't know if you know our background, but um, my sister and I are Palestinian. Yeah. And so I'm sure you've come across this in your career as a police officer, but there's a lot of cultures that are very uh, wary and terrified in some cases of figures of authority, police, military, etc. Because in our home country, <laughs> The police and the army that we encounter are are terrifying and they're not acting with any kind of sense of morality or integrity. So the fact that we have managed to become so obsessed with a former police officer, it just says even more because normally <laughs> we're terrified of police officers. I understand that. I, just, I mean, you know, we're in strange times and frightening times in terms of policing and, and that kind of thing and thinking about the morality of police and, you know, They've always been weirdos. They've always been wrong'uns within the police, you know. 
It's just that I think somehow we've taken our eye off the ball and not managed to weed them out. When I joined back in the 80s, we did 16 weeks at Hendon as residential training, 24-7 with experienced police officers watching over. And the weirdos and the wrong-uns got slung. You know, they, they, were, they, they showed up during that time and they were thrown out before they ever had a chance to get anywhere near the members of the public. Training now is, my son joined nearly nine years ago now. He did training eight to four at an office block in Richmond. Easier to keep the facade up during work hours, isn't it? Yeah, um, that's right. It, it's, you, can, you might be able to manage it for sitting in the classroom for eight hours, but when you're actually going to the bar and you're socialising and playing sport and all the other things, that's when these things bubble to the surface. And, and I say, you know, it was the, the sort of attrition rate from residential training was quite high. You know, it, yeah. it really was an effective filter. And we've lost that. And we've lost that just because, you know, 2010, somebody decided we weren't going to spend any money on the police or anything, basically. Um, yeah. Again, also, as we told Steve Gaskin, the, the byline of our podcast is if we have one an unofficial one is hashtag fuck the Tories because my sister is a former teacher we obviously talk a lot about police and um mm. and crime and so forth and we're we're very upset and worried and terrified about all these cuts in public spending yeah yeah it's it's horrifying it is it is tough but there we go thankfully there's still enough people who want to do the job and think of the job more than themselves i think that's that's a that's change in some ways with a lot of public service i think there's a lot of there's a lot of selfishness around that perhaps wasn't there years ago and perhaps you know as a society we've just become more selfish like that but i don't think you know nobody goes into policing or teaching for that matter thinking they're going to get rich do they and it's yeah it's quite upsetting that they're not treated in the way they should be treated anyway sorry i'm, I'm droning on my soapbox no, we agree with you. We join we you on that soapbox. I mean, my sister is an ex-teacher for that reason, that they're treating people in those professions horrendously. For, for that, it was a career I left out of principle. One, because of that, I wasn't. I was also a union rep, and then I became doubly disillusioned and disappointed by by it from my own experiences and then from representing other people with their experience. But then, but then also, I have two children who are autistic in a special needs school, and the mainstream system, I just could not, I was not buying what I was selling anymore. And I just can, could not stand by the practices of mainstream education, which doesn't serve everyone. And there is such a gap between the haves and the have nots. And education is not seeming to be able to bridge that gap enough. I especially saw it because I was a music teacher and which is, you know, has always been a subject, you know, for the privileged. And it was becoming harder for for kids who weren't having the private tutoring to access those subjects. And so all of these things, you know, yeah. It began to bother me too much. Um, also, then, you know, the fact that kids with special needs, neurodivergent kids, they just aren't being served sufficiently, adequately or well, even, you know, because we can do better than sufficiently and we should be doing better than that. And they just weren't being catered for, you know, in a mainstream setting. So, you know, yeah. it got to the point where I'd, I, uh, for my sanity, I'd had enough and I hand, hand it over to those who are better able to to deal with those disappointments, you know, and the funding cuts, as you mentioned, that's catastrophic. Yeah, just too many, too little money, too many people, really. Let's lift up the conversation by talking about murder, shall we? Yeah. Colin, 
I do want to tell you a story about our how our parents met because we think it's really cute because we wouldn't actually be here if it wasn't for the police <laughs> in that our parents met when they got arrested together. Oh, really? It was a student protest in the 60s. <laughs> yeah. I, I like to tell people it was homicide, but they were demonstrating in Belgium where they were both studying. Peaceful demonstration, a sit-in. Um, but my mom was one of the one, first ones to be carried off by the police. And my dad saw her and thought she looked cute. And he was impressed because she was offering resistance by making herself heavy. <laughs> you know how people do that yeah. <laughs> when they're being lifted away. So he was impressed by her green uh, corduroy bell bottoms. But yes, just to clarify, our parents are not criminals. They are activists, peaceful ones at that. We have a sort of a kind of a similarity there, though, because my parents indeed met. Well, my dad was a policeman. Yeah, my dad was on duty and my mum was selling poppies and dad's kind of asked her if she had a license and a permit and if it was all above board it was just an excuse to speak to her that's how they met and my birthday not the same year obviously my birthday is 11th of november how cute only by a matter of um of of, of sex at birth did i avoid being called poppy <laughs> it was either poppy or colin <laughs> yeah but d- did your mother have a license though colin <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember hearing that your your father was a police officer as well. So we wanted to ask you about what led you to pursue a career in law enforcement. Uh, I think really, I was. I mean, I was kind of immersed in it from a very young age. I'm an only child, and I, I remember you know some of my earliest memories of of dad of, of the smell, the 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 uniform, the raincoat had the smell that was still there when I joined. It was really. Sort of, you know, smells are very sort of evocative, aren't they? Yeah. So, Dad, yeah, Dad was Dad was a, a, a PC for all his service. He, he he never got promoted. He was traffic cop for a lot of the time. My mum was kind of quite particular. I think because I didn't have any siblings, that you know, I was sort of dragged along to things with them from reasonably early age, and and so I met a lot of his friends, and so I knew about the kind of culture and about the idea, and and I I kind of had this sort of morality from it I suppose or this idea, the idea of service I don't know but it was just seemed the right thing to do and it's not just him as I say my, my grandparents sort of missed out but my great-grandfather was a met cop as well uh, and now of course my son is so we've, we've done four out of five generations we've served in the Met. And also you're no longer an only child because you are an honorary switchblade sister. Oh that's true yeah of course <laughs> it's, uh, it's nice to have switchblades. <laughs> you decide that later down the line yeah. <laughs> we could be fairly annoying <laughs> lucky enough I went to a sort of decent school and, and did well and academically and, and uh, when I went to university York University was the university I wanted to go to because it did it was the only one at the time that did a course in German with linguistics and, and I did German to A level and I enjoyed it and I enjoyed the idea of linguistics and sort of language and how language works and things like that. Dad said something like, um, that's a really good idea. We can open a linguistic shop and you can call it the fucking market. Now go and do something sensible. <laughs> do you know, it's really interesting you mentioned linguistics because... Our mom did that. Yeah, she was a lecturer in that field. And oh, really? I, yeah, and I found it fast. And she, her thesis, her PhD that she was doing was on uh, Henry Kissinger and linguistics and semantics and... And I found it really interesting with the Unabomber, how they caught him. Yes. I'm also a copy editor. 
So I love words and I work with words every day. And yeah. and linguistics and semantics are fascinating. People's choice of language that they use and the turns of phrase that they use. And I know that that's with a Unabomber. You know, I remember the phrase, have your cake and eat it too. He actually used that in reverse. Yeah. There's a whole forensic um, branch now, isn't there, of, of, of forensic, forensic etymology, something like that. I don't know. Mm. There was a case I was looking at recently for from a new series of of um, Real Manhunter, and it's quite a common thing where perpetrators will use the victim's phone or email account to send messages to make it look as if they're still alive when in fact they're dead, and they then get experts to look at all the other text messages and emails that person sent, and they can give an opinion as to whether or not that person's likely to have sent it because everybody writes their texts and their emails in slightly different ways. That's quite an interesting sort of branch. Fascinating. I I, I, I love the idea. I, I, I thought it was a great idea, but I say they, they didn't really. And I'd kind of made up my mind that I wanted to join the police then, but I hadn't told anyone. So I guess that's probably why it looked a bit odd. Why do you want to go and do this really sort of esoteric subject that's not really going to do you qualify to anything other than probably teach or, or lecture? Uh, and it didn't matter because I just wanted to go and then join the police. So anyway, I went to go and do law instead at Leeds. And uh, I hated being away from London. I think I was a bit immature. I think if I'd have, you know, gap years weren't really a thing back then in 1979 when I went up to university. So um, I think if I'd have taken a gap year, I'd have probably lasted the course, if you like. But I didn't. And I joined the police and, and I did a year and a term. And I didn't realise when I applied that. I met were going to acknowledge my application by sending a postcard to my home address so my parents read it and they came hot footing up the motorway to Leeds saying, what the hell is this? What's going on? So, anyway, but they were fine. You know, we, we we discussed it and they've been supportive of me ever since and ever afterwards. And of course, I was lucky the way, silly way my career went in the police. I was sent back when I was 26 to university full time to do my law degree. So I got my law degree in the end. Powerful is the Cox Network. So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Bread Isle, are you ready to rock? Dave's Killer Bread is the country's number one organic bread for a reason. Always delivering killer taste, killer texture, and killer nutrition. This isn't bread. This is bread amplified. We're lucky. We're the lucky ones. We are. I was going to say, we are lucky that you made that pivot and detour into the police force. Mm-hmm. One of the things that following you and the Levi Belfield case, one of the things that we're really interested in is the changes in the field. You talk a lot about DNA versus what you call sort of good old fashioned coppering, looking at CCTV yeah. cameras and so forth. So we're just wondering what are some of the biggest changes you might have seen in the field of law enforcement and how do these impact the way investigations are conducted? Yeah, I mean, DNA was obviously the big thing during my service that came in. It was sort of mid mid 80s when it first got used up in Leicestershire with the Colin Pitchfork case but it didn't become mainstream until the 
the mid 90s so it's about I, I kind of had half my career with it and half without it and it was huge and everyone thought it was going to be you know a game changer and in many ways it is you know there's no better way of proving that somebody was there than dna there's no better way of proving sexual assaults and rapes than dna and when it became the low copy number technique in this around about 2000 whereby basically you know i touch the screen and now my my dna is on the screen and it can be grown and developed you know that that really was exciting but it, it almost brought as many problems as it solved because the potential for getting cross-contamination and mixed mixed profiles and other things became huge but by and large it was a great thing the difficulty comes when you get a DNA profile from the crime scene and you don't know whose it is and that person is not on the database. I'm not plugging here, but there is a chapter in, in the, the Night Stalker book that I call the DNA seduction because the temptation is then for people to think, well, okay, we've got DNA, that's the way we're going to solve this. And I think what that's doing is kind of deflecting the focus of officers and also perhaps de-skilling them. 1996-ish was when DNA became mainstream in the UK most police officers in this country now, I mean, that's, that's what is it, 30, uh, 27 years ago now. So most police officers who are serving have only known DNA, have grown up with having DNA there. Um, and sorry, if you can hear my clock, it's just chiming. because I, think it's <laughs> I love that you have clocks, Colin, that chime. <laughs> it's a proper old thing with, with, with weights and I have to wind it and grab <laughs> I like it. The problem I think is, is this element of de-skilling and, and this element of an expectation of DNA to be present at every case. And that expectation is carried through to the CPS, it's carried through to jurors. Uh, and you know, in the Belfield case, we had none, we had none of it. And Brian Orton, when he opened the case to the jury, said, members of the jury, there will be no DNA in this case. Because they're brought up now on a diet of, I don't know, Dexter and, and CSI and, and Waking the Dead and Silent Witness and all these other things that are on TV and drama and films and, and, and fiction books and things where, you know, DNA is, is, is an ever-present means of cracking a case, it seems. And, and, and it's, not, it's not always that simple and always that straightforward. Yeah, I just, I just worry that some of the you know, staggering, stunning pieces of detective work that my team did during the Belfield investigation have we actually got the capacity for that in the future going forward? And, and it's, it's particularly relevant as well to cold cases. I live up in East Anglia and I, I met a man the other day who works on a cold case team in one of the, the small police forces up here. And I sort of said, wow, that must be a great job. You know, I love doing cold cases and that, that's, what a great job you've got. And they said, yeah, it's, it's so of course, it's all based on forensics. And I said, what do you mean DNA? So yeah, yeah. So that's that's really all we do is we, we we go and find the old exhibits from the old cases and see what we can do scientifically now. And if they, we can't, then we put them away and look for another one. So even in the kind of narrow field of doing cold case stuff, it's all about DNA. It's not about mm. revisiting witnesses. It's not about talking to people and trying to find things they've seen. I think there's a danger. I think there's a danger because we, the police, they, can I stop saying we, mustn't I? But, you know, the police manage not to contaminate scenes with DNA. They can take precautions, which means they won't leave their own DNA there. Well, if they can do that, then so can the opposition. 
And so are we really putting all our eggs in one basket of this, this method of solving crimes when we know that it's possible for criminals to avoid falling foul of it? I just think there's a danger there. Also, yeah. I remember in the Delaware Grant episode, there was a mix-up of DNA, wasn't there? Because there were there was yeah. another Delaware Grant. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's, again, that's the other danger. Because people take it as read and take it for granted and say this must be correct. And in most cases, it is. You know, in most cases, it's a one in a billion chance that somebody else has got that DNA. So, so you're quite safe. But when you're putting that much faith in a system where there's still humans at work in the system, then there's always the potential for error. I can't talk too much about it because it's not come out yet, but we, we made a film during the summer, um, myself and two of my former colleagues, about looking at some old cases from the 1970s, from before I was even, well, while I was still at school, basically. And we made some progress on it by talking to people, even 40-odd years later. We found a new witness, somebody who'd never come forward to the police in 1979 because she was a child, well, she was 13 or 14 years old, and her parents said, oh, don't get involved. And now she thought she ought to. To write all that off as, as a potential for taking cases forward is, is, is pretty dangerous. Mm. You mentioned Colin Pitchfork. We actually did an episode on that as well. It was yes. based off of your book recommendation. You just held it up briefly at a talk that I watched online. Yes. And so I bought it. I didn't know what it was about. But Colin, you said it was a good book. So I bought it. And <laughs> it was it was fascinating. The blooding which is obviously how sort of DNA came to be used in in a crime setting. And first time where Mm. someone was cleared of a murder using DNA and first time someone was convicted using DNA. From a sort of a a, a literary point of view, I found that that was interesting, that book, because Joseph Wambau was an ex-LAPD cop and he's written a lot of, of fiction stories that, you know, some of them made into big films, The Quiet Boys is the big one, The Unknown Fields. And then he suddenly decided that he was going to write a true crime book. So obviously he realised that's what proper authors do, you know, I think. Yeah, of course. (laughs) All the greats. It was a little bit dated because it came out soon after the the case actually happened. I think it was published in the late 80s. So there were a few things in there where we're like... "Mm." We know different now. Like, I think he said that, you know, if someone's a flasher, it's not really a concern, whereas now we know that probably it, it, it might be something you should look at. Yeah, it was super fascinating. But I was wondering how much non-DNA evidence do you need to go to court if you don't have DNA, like with the Levi Belfield, hmm. in order to convince the jury because they're so reliant on DNA, so expecting of it? How much other evidence would you need to to late to get a conviction it's a good question because it's not one where it's not one that particularly easy to answer because it, it's kind of obviously depends on the case and the circumstances but i think what i'd say is that you, you you hear about the phrase circumstantial evidence and it's kind of used in a, an almost kind of pejorative way and you know, it's not it's not as good as real evidence you know but actually it is it's just you need more of it and you need to build layer upon layer with it really and i guess you need to get to a point where all these pieces of evidence that you're bringing forward are beyond coincidence and are convincing beyond coincidence. And that's really what we did with, with Belford. I mean, the strongest case that we had was, was the Amelie Delagrange case because we had the CCTV with a van. We had the evidence that he was driving the van. We had the evidence that his mobile phone was in the area at that time and that he had that mobile phone with him. And it, it kind of just 
went on and on and on. But because of the way that the, the law allows cross-admissibility of cases, having kind of proved that one to that standard, then the jury were able to use the fact of what we proved with Amelie in their decision as to whether or not he was likely to have killed Marshall McDonald and whether or not he was likely to have attempts to kill Kate Sheedy. So it's a cumulative effect, I suppose. And in cases where there are serial offences, then that cumulative effect usually will be allowed by the courts to be cumulative across across all the cases. And of course, when he then stood trial again for the Millie Dowler case in 2011, so that was some sort of four years later, again, the fact that he'd been convicted of these murders and attempted murders on young women was irrelevant to that case, where again, there was no forensic evidence, you know. Well, while we're talking about Levi... There's some stuff in the press at the moment, literally in the last week or two, about how he supposedly confessed to a student be- who was killed in Ealing in 1999, Elizabeth Chow. Yeah. I know Steve Gaskin, um, he's talked about how he thinks it's quite a big coincidence, is as far as he'll say, that you know Levi's teenage girlfriend was also found murdered in a very similar way. Do you think that we will find out about cases in the future that he may or may not be responsible for? Or do you think this is him just, you know, trying to turn attention onto him because he's clearly a narcissist at the very least? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've almost given up trying to understand what goes on in his brain. The Elizabeth Child case was not one which we came across. We didn't, where we were looking at similar offences uh so so sort of blitz attacks with hammer or blunt instrument or whatever it didn't come out and so the first literally the first i'd heard about that case was when i read that in the newspaper at the weekend could he have done it yeah he could have done it i mean nothing nothing he does would ever surprise me what i find interesting about the latest thing he's actually admitted apparently some of the offences with which we tried to charge him. So the Sonia Salvatierra, who was the nanny that was attacked and survived in Twickenham, Peruvian lady who went back to Peru. And we, we brought her from Peru over here to do an ID parade. And she didn't pick him out, but he says he did that. He said there's a, there's a 16-year-old girl that was attacked in Strawberry Vale shortly before Marshall McDonald was murdered. And he now says, yes, I did that, which is fine. What I don't really understand with it is why he won't I would have thought his starting point, if he wanted to be sort of repentant and and show his his remorse, I would have thought he'd have started with the offences for which he's been convicted. And he hasn't. He's not admitted yet still that he murdered Emily, that he murdered Marsha, he tried to murder Kate, and he murdered Millie Dowler. And I would have thought that would have been the starting point before trying to admit all these other things. It's in the paper again yesterday, something the saying in relation to the, the murders of, of um, Lynn and Meghan Russell in, in Kent in, in 96 or whenever that was. You know, and a solicitor, different solicitor, new solicitor now saying, oh, yes, I've got a signed statement. Well, I, you know, that, that's something else that we've done and that will be coming to be broadcast soon is, is during the summer. We we made a film where myself and Joe Brunt and Mark Leach, so two of my best detectives from my old team. We love the Leach brothers. Yeah, I know you do. The, the crime fighting team. Dave's been a bit oh, Dave was going to join us on that, but he he had some sort of health problems. Unfortunately, he's over now, so he wasn't able to do that in the summer. But yeah, we looked at we we kind of had the statement that Belfield made last year 
about the, the Russell murders. And we went through it line by line and tried to prove or disprove what was in it and what he claims. I won't spoil it, but, you know, we, we, we came to a conclusion. And, and I don't actually know where that's, where that's going to be broadcast because it's been made in quite a strange way and that the production company have paid for it and we've made it, but they're now sort of trying to place it with broadcasters. Um, so yeah, you tell it's... us as soon as you know, because we need to set our VCRs to record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he likes to remain relevant. He likes to stir the pot, I think is a phrase I used. I think he's wicked in that he continues to try to cause as much upset and misery for the families of his victims as he can, even though he's behind bars forever. And all that does each time that he does that is it just makes me, you know, even more determined that we did the right thing and that he was, you know, the most horrible, evil person imaginable that we could we could take off the street and lock up and, and makes me more pleased that we did. He wouldn't have stopped, would he? He would have just carried on. Oh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's something I say quite often is that there's this sort of motif that runs through drama and fiction where, where you say, oh, God, how long have we got till they commit another one? You know, well, we lived that for real. And when you've actually got that sitting on your shoulders and going to work every day, there's quite a, yeah, there's quite a, quite a pressure in that. That you know, when we had him under surveillance, I, I, I was really, really nervous about that and, and said so. And those above me, Kind of, no, 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 you'll be all right. We'll take responsibility for it. Yeah, thankfully it didn't happen, but I'd like to have seen that. But anyway, but uh, we had a surveillance team on him because we thought he might lead us to the van and to some evidence that would help us. But I think I said at the time, you know, we, we could have another murder that's got eight police officers witnessing it and a video recording because he does it so quickly. How confident can we be that we can intercept, intercept him? And, yeah, and, and stop him from doing it. And And... You know, this is a very sort of high-risk strategy. The, 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 feeling, the feeling was that, you know, if we had him under control like that with, with a surveillance team nearby, then he wouldn't be able to do it. But I thought it was it was a risk. I understood the risk. You know, the, the, the potential gains were, were pretty huge and substantial and, and worth taking the risk for, I'm sure. But, but uh, it was a worrying time, particularly when the surveillance team was sitting there watching him chatting up two 14-year-olds at a, a bus stop. Oof. Yeah. Colin, one of the questions we wanted to ask you was when you're working on cases like this, is it possible to, or how do you manage to try to rate, retain or maintain some sort of semblance of a normal existence outside of work? How many holidays have you had to cancel? <laughs> uh, quite a few. Yeah. I mean, I've, I, I was always really good at compartmentalizing my life, I suppose. I'm not normally very good at saying that word, but I managed it there. Compartmentalizing, yeah, that's it. I've got it. I, I grew up in North London in Enfield, which was particularly in the 60s and 70s when I grew up, was a reasonably sort of nice suburb and went to the only grammar school in in the area. So I did well at school. And everything had gone sort of good for me and, and life was quite easy and quite nice. And then I went six, six miles down the road to Tottenham as a PC and thought, what the hell have I done? Jesus, is life really like this? Just, 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 you know, this is just a world that didn't exist six miles down the road. And I think it was at that point. So I was quite young. I was sort of 21, 22 years old or whatever. And I, and I kind of said, well, 
that's work and this is home and the two are different worlds and are different places and you know it might only be six miles but I've never worked and lived in the same area mm. and some people say that's a bad mm-hmm. thing I, I, I think it's a good thing but I understand the arguments that perhaps policing if you're in your own community is better for the community I understand that and it tends to happen outside London because the fact of the matter is that very few police officers can actually afford to live in London certainly not in central London or people in general <laughs> yeah or people in general right yeah so I, I kind of was quite good at that at keeping it separate and that carried on I remember one particular night when I was still in uniform I was a uniform inspector and we went to we did the night duty at Notting Hill Carnival and the previous year we'd come under there's a photograph somewhere that was in the papers in the Daily Mail I think it was we came under fire and myself and my team from Holloway Police Station are there with their helmets strapped down and we didn't have shields we were just and stuff was being chucked at us and I looked petrified actually I sent you the photo it's quite a good photo Wait, is it this one? It's not this one, but I'm just using this as an excuse to bring up this photo. No, that's in- <laughs> I know. Oh. That's in my parents' uh, front room at my old house in Enfield. That is, that was a promoted to inspector. Yeah, I was the youngest inspector in the country, so it made the local newspaper. I'll find a picture and send it to you. It's quite, it's quite good because it's, it's got all my old team my response team I was response team inspector at Holloway and and we've done anyway we'd done that the year before come under fire it was a bit unpleasant this year we'd done the night duty it wasn't so bad and when we finished on the Tuesday morning after bank holiday Monday we went down to Smithfield in just on the north edge of the city of London where the meat market is where they had they had one of these wonderful early houses which is special licensed pubs for the people who work in the meat trade there to go into and you can go into a pub at sort of six in the morning and it's a jukebox playing and people are throwing darts and playing. So I work for St. John for a long time and I still do contract work. And, you know, they're based on there. You've got the Museum of the Order of St. John. Yes. And, and I work for the branch that's yeah. the eye hospitals. But, yeah, so I remember <laughs> going to work and there's already drunk people in the streets. And you're, it took me a yeah. while to realise, no, they haven't just had a long night. They've just fucked off a few hours ago, 4 a.m. And <laughs> Yeah, and many of them got bloodstained aprons as well which is always a nice effect Uh, yeah as a vegetarian (laughs) having to step over rivers of cow blood and stuff to get to work was (laughs) yeah anyway so we went down there we had a couple you know just had a drink or two just to sort of wind down after the weekend we'd done there and while we were there somebody it was a city of london police officer came in and uh, she told us that a pc a met pc had been shot dead in stoke newington and it just kind of completely flattened the atmosphere as you can imagine it was it was called Laurie Brown I didn't know him but he was somebody was mentally ill and they they decided they were going to shoot a policeman and what year was this would have been 1990 I believe they they sort of put a hoax call up and he turned up to answer the call and they just shot him it was deliberate deliberate act but we got that news and, and I went home feeling really really you know it was one of those times when i didn't leave it at work. I drove up the A10. I lived up in Hertfordshire then, and I drove home, and I was thinking about this all the time and thinking, you know, I'd been immersed in this policing operation for the last three days with all my team and all these people and doing their best. And kind of was a tough thing to police, you know, in, in many ways. And then somebody does that, and it, that was kind of the first time it really got to me. But fortunately, we we my first wife had we had horses and. Uh, How powerful is the Cox Network? 
so powerful that one day the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Leftovers. Or... The DMV. Number 97. Or... House cleaning. Or... Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I decided to go and put a feed into the horses and just stood there and talked to them for 10 minutes or half an hour. Is that part of your self-care routine, Colin? Yeah, it was brilliant. It was brilliant for it because they don't talk back to you. You know, they just sort of chomp and, and nod at you which is what I like in a woman no <laughs> do you know we had a, a question for you from one of our listeners and it's one that we actually asked Steve Gaskin and I'm always particularly interested in the psychology behind these these mm. people and um, the question was about whether you are always on high alert or aware of the nuances of you know, when you see traits that are untoward, that are unsavory, that are potentially worrying, are you always aware of those in people? Is it something you can switch off or are you always hyper aware of those sort of traits and characteristics and nuances? I think once you've got them switched on, they they can't be switched off. I think once you know, you can't unknow them, you know. I'm terrible. I suppose terrible for making judgments in my head about things and people sometimes yeah and what can you do with that if they haven't committed a crime but you can see something that you know is worrying and your instinct is telling you from Mm. experience that this person is potentially capable what can you do with that information if they haven't actually committed a crime nothing i mean these days obviously nothing these days all i do is i just don't go on their podcast yay he doesn't get psychopath (laughs) vibes from us (laughs) It's really, it's a really sort of difficult area, isn't it? Because people will talk about stereotyping, they'll talk about profiling, you know, in, in that sense and, and things like that. And yet by the same token, they talk about having the copper's nose or the intuition or gut feeling. And where does one end and the other one sort of begin? You know, it's, it's difficult. I mean, I spent quite a few years in the sort of intelligence field, particularly when I was working outside the Met. and you know, a lot of that has to be done on feelings, on kind of analysis, I suppose. And you kind of get to the situation there, like we were talking about circumstantial evidence in trials, you know, you sort of get to the point where there become so many bits of intelligence that might not be hard and might not be able to be proved or stood up. But when you've got a cumulative effect, it becomes a sort of a critical mass and and something has has to be done. And that's, I suppose, how how a lot of sort of proactive policing is is kind of done is is done working on these bits of intelligence and hunches and ideas and I, I say this often the whole thing about being a detective is about understanding people it's about understanding how people react and what people are likely to do that's that's a lot of yeah you know, what we did was to say okay 
if we think this happened, how would he or she have reacted? You know, and, and it's, it's trying to just to do that, to kind of try and make sense out of the pieces of information that you have. And sometimes you have to do that by kind of trial and error, you know, almost. You sort of go down one road and it it gets closed off to you and you have to go back to the last thing you know for certain and try something else. And that's that's kind of in a in a very sort of broad brush way how investigations work, I guess. You know, as I said, we're we're really interested in the psychology. And we have prepared a podcast episode that is coming out soon about the nature versus nurture debate, you know, covering McDonald Triangle, things like that. And originally, I made the assumption that people who commit these abhorrent crimes don't come from happy households, from happy family dynamics. But then getting deeper into this, you know, we've seen that that's not always the case. For example, in the Ian Lawrence case, sometimes a life event. Yeah. It could, can sometimes a life event, a changing life event, make somebody do these horrendous things when they did potentially have a happy, stable home life? I don't think you can be prescriptive about it. I think it's, you know, there, there are, we, we all come to sort of crossroads, don't we, or forks in the road in our lives at various times, and we make a choice, and some people make the right choice, and some people make the wrong choice, and some people make a series of wrong choices, and if you make three or four wrong choices at crossroads, then all of a sudden you're in a very different place, aren't you? So you don't think it always comes back to the childhood and the formative years? Was there, for example, with Ian Lawrence, you know, I know he was a pilot, he had a good career, things changed. Mm. But was there something going on there before, you know, he was laid off and his life took a different turn? Was there something there that was unnoticed? Or were his actions really just inspired by life taking the wrong turn for him? Yeah, um, I think he had something which I think we see in a lot of killers. And that's a kind of a self-belief or arrogance or narcissism, if you, to the extreme, whatever. I think he felt that he was clever than he probably was and felt that he was able to to do something and get away with it because he was that clever. And in the event, he actually wasn't. But if you look at the planning that went in, the dummy runs, the turning the airbag off and all that sort of thing that he did, he was he thought he was working this out, crossing every T and dotting every I and, and, and dealing with every eventuality, and he, he wasn't. In truth, very few people do, uh, and that's why they get caught. But many people believe that they have that they're, they're the smartest person in the room. Yeah, I remember what you said. He underestimated French engineering, didn't he, with the black box? Yeah, this old Peugeot. Yeah, we should just say that this is one of the episodes in your series. So if if people want to know more about this case, they can watch. Yes. Yeah, it fascinated me. It, it really did because I naively when we started our podcast and started doing research, you know, I, I always said to Dee when she was presenting her episodes, well, tell me the backstory. What, an absent father, a domineering mother, what happened, you know, because you often see those as the common denominators. And I find it fascinating when actually those aren't the factors and what's no. made them wrong, you know, when it's, no. it's other factors. I've got a healthy skepticism, which Steve Gaskin's very aware of, that about, profiling in terms of psychology i don't think it's nearly as useful as many people think it might be i think it's very interesting and i think looking at people like levi belfield or stephen wright or in Lance or anybody who's who's committed you know notable murders looking at them looking at 
what might have gone on. Yes, that informs us. That informs our knowledge of the human condition and how humans react and, and how the human brain works and all sorts of things. What I don't think it does is actually helps the SIOs who are trying to solve murders in the future because it was kind of in the in the playbook, if you like, of, you know, seek seek forensic profile and psychological profile of who, who might commit this sort of crime. And, and it was almost like reading a horoscope in the papers. You know, it was, it was kind of probably doesn't form relationships, may live with his mother, may, you know, just may use pornography. These sort of vague things that you kind of think, well, yeah, okay. You can retrospectively apply them to almost anyone. Yeah, I mean, exactly that. And, and you just sort of think, well, there's, there's nothing in there that doesn't actually, that doesn't actually reduce the pool of possible suspects that I've got for the crime I'm, I'm investigating mm-hmm. because it's too wide and too vague and can't be prescriptive. And, you know, they're not magicians and, and they're not soothsayers. They haven't got crystal balls or whatever else. But perhaps the expectation of kind of true crime fans and lay people in, in terms of what those academic people can do in terms of predicting who you should be looking at I think the expectation is far beyond the reality. So is it another thing like DNA where there's a a sort of climate of place but there shouldn't be an over-reliance on it? I don't think you can rely upon it at all I I honestly don't know and somebody who's watching this if anyone ever listens to this Lots of people listen to it. <laughs> We're a top 25 podcast. Finish my sentence. <laughs> if anybody listens to this who knows, who, who, who has knowledge, they'll probably come forward and say, oh, yeah, but in this case in America or Canada or Italy or somewhere, it helped. Probably our cases. I just don't know of any in this country where the psychological profile, the forensic sort of psychologist work, has pointed an SIO directly to a perpetrator of a murder. That's the trouble because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It happened to a degree in Belfield because what happened was that when Marsha McDonald was murdered, the team from Hendon, another team, investigated that murder. And they had someone, didn't they? In- well, I called Charles in the book. It wasn't his name. He was 16. And he was a weirdo. And he chased another girl for whatever purpose who, who'd run away from him that same day. And so, quite reasonably, the officers investigated and said, well, okay, well, what are the chances? This, this happens in Shepparton, I think it was, or Sunbury, wherever it happened, and this happened in Hampton. What are the chances of that happening, of having those two incidents, the same safe part of London, within a couple of hours of each other with different people? Let's look at him. And then... The profilers get involved with it and they say, yeah, okay, he fits it. He's got this, he's got that. He's taking books from out of the library on murder and strange things. Who hasn't? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I always yeah. say if 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 anyone needs to look at my Google search history, someone please tell them about this podcast. I'm going to clear why. your history. Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to clear you. your history if I need to. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, there was all that going on. And I say it became... It became a kind of circular argument that supported itself and supported itself and supported itself. So I think there's a danger with that. What I do like, and you don't hear of it very much now, but I do like the idea of geographical profiling. Mm, Okay. I was having a conversation with Steve, Steve Gaskin, about using this to potentially predict where upcoming crimes might occur 
but also using it to sort of backtrack and, and identify where the person is operating from. Yeah. But yeah, fascinating. Mm. Yeah. If you look at Belfield, it's, okay, there's a location at Walton Bridge. Cowie Sale is the kind of public car park and there's a hot dog stand sort of thing, you know, a coffee stall or something there and people go down there and feed the ducks with their kids. Well, not only did Belfield dump Amelie Delagrange's handbag in the river there, he also raped one of his former partners under that bridge in a car. He used to go there with his mates throwing eggs at the passing rowers. He was comfortable there. He knew the ways in and out and he felt safe. The whole thing was was kind of initiated as a guy called Kim Rossimo, who was a police officer in Canada, who kind of was the initiator of this concept of, of geographical profiling. It works. You know, if you looked at Delroy Grant, Delroy Grant was classic. Where he lived to where he was offending, it kind of all fitted. They told me at the time that Levi Belfield, that they if they loaded him onto their kind of database they were running for geographical profiling, it would skew it because he was so classic and everywhere that he did something had some kind of connection to his past and his anchor points, as they call them, things like that, that it would kind of make all the others less correct. He's so textbook. Yeah, exactly. That's the word. I'm quite interested in that as a as a concept. I think there's something in that. It's like a lot of these things, it's actually quite common sense because you think about it and think, well, if you're worried that you're going to get caught and you want to know how you can escape and where you can be, would you rather be in a completely strange town or in your hometown? Mm-hmm. We don't even like to go places where we don't know where the bathroom is. <laughs> Sounds reasonable, actually. Or parking. <laughs> On the topic of Delroy Grant, one question I had, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a criminologist, I think that's obvious. We have absolutely no <laughs> qualifications that... That validate our opinions or anything. We just like to talk about it. But one thing that fascinated me with his was his selective morality, if you can call it that. Yeah. About how I remember in one of the cases, one of his victims managed to scare him away by telling him off. Is that right? Yeah, he's one of them sort of said what certainly one of them said something about his mother. And he said, Oh, my mum was let down by the government. And that led led to a huge sort of well, goose chase line of inquiry of trying to find out people who may have died, black women who may have died in southeast London over a period, you know, just wide thing to, to look at. I'm no psychologist either, as, as you know. I, I, I'm a policeman who did law and that's it and didn't do German linguistics. <laughs> but I think he perfected the sort of Jekyll and Hyde character. I think he perfected the, the double life. The reason I say that, and I didn't realise this until sometime later, after I'd retired and when I was writing the book, really, was that you know the bit about the cricket conversation in the, in the charge room, okay? So I've, it's three in the morning at Lewisham Police Station. He's there all in white. I've got this West Indian man in his 50s, and cricket was still big in the West Indies when he was growing up. Yes, I remember. Yeah, and, and I sort of say, oh, are you batting or bowling? Because he's all dressed in white clothes that we've given him. And he picks on it straight away and says, oh, are you into cricket? And we, we have this rather bizarre conversation about the England squad for a tour of South Africa or something. And I couldn't understand that. I just kind of put that down to being bizarre. You'll never know what people throw at you. You know, you could never work out how people's minds work. But then when I thought about it later and thought the difference in how friends and associates 
of Belfield and of Grant reacted to the arrest was market. Okay, so the people who knew Leaf, I said, well, yeah, we always knew he was a he was a bad one. He was a wrong one. He yeah, it was just a matter of time before he came to grief. Whereas the people we spoke to about Delroy Grant would say, no, not Delroy, you've got the wrong man. Can't be him. He's the you know the life and soul of the party. He runs the barbecues in the we have street parties in the cul-de-sac he does the djing for it. he plays dominoes at the pub he's the store of the cricket team he, he cares for his wife who's got progressive ms he used to go knocking on doors with her with jehovah's witnesses because he loves etc you must have the wrong man and because we knew he didn't because of the dna and so you realize that he had this ability to be one thing to his family to his friends to those who knew him and on the other hand, you've got this bloke who goes around breaking into old ladies and assaulting them and sometimes raping them and stealing their money. And they're two completely different things. And what I was getting in that cricket conversation, I was getting the Dilro Grant that his friends got. I was getting that I'm just Mr. Normal. I'm just Mr. Nice Guy. And he knew, he knew that somebody had, somebody had got this, you know, giant-sized cotton button, popped it through his mouth. He knew that was sending him to prison until he was a very old man he knew that and yet he was still able to flick the switch and be um mr chummy talk about cricket which one's more terrifying the sort of jekyll and hyde delroy grant or the levi's who i'm sure almost anyone meeting him would get a bad vibe of off of him you might not think oh he's a serial killer but you know you wouldn't want to be alone with him they're scary in different ways i i, I think personally scary to me probably Delroy I think Delroy was cunning and capable and Levi was a bit of a coward he Levi was a bully but we did a whole section as you know about his friends and associates and they're all um yeah questionable yeah they're, they're all people that he knew he could dominate so he'd been successful at it over the years he'd managed to dominate either by force or by charm multiple partners multiple women multiple men police officers courts it wasn't until until he came up against my team and then he came and stuck and he actually got beaten mm. once. I had the pleasure, and I, I put that in inverted commas, I was at uh, eye department of a big hospital yesterday with my mother. And they were fantastic and it was so busy and she's had a detached retina and, and had an operation on it. And so she can't she can't drive anyway. She'd never been able to drive. So dad's also got a uh, cataract that he needs sorting. So he's not driving either. So I'm, I've, I've been, you know, taking them about which is fair enough they did it for me when i was couldn't drive when i was little it's the bell curve of life isn't it you know you come in you come in unable to speak or care, look after yourself and you go out the same way sadly it seems it was full circle listen you're talking to arabs so we are very used to having to drop everything at a moment's notice <laughs> for our parents <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. support for the father we live know. in each other's pockets <laughs> yeah we really do me and my sister actually used to live in two flats in the same building and we loved it i would go back to that in a heartbeat mm. and yeah. um yeah so speak to my dad at least three four times a day on the phone <laughs> see them daily <laughs> So yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so I'm there, and of course it's it's the, the demographic in the eye clinic at Norfolk and Norwich Hospital was such as to make me feel quite youthful, put it that way. And then I look at my mum, you know, she's in her eighties, and I look at her and I say, well, I think it's people like you, like these ladies here, that he was that Delroy Grant was breaking into and and sexually assaulting, sometimes raping. And not just that, but 
scaring them to death by waking them up beforehand, you know, to, to be that old and to be sleeping on your own in your own house and to be awoken by this thing crouching over you, shining a torch in your face, pinning you down to the bed. I don't make light, obviously, I don't make light of, of the effect of, of an indecent assault or a rape at all. But that ought to be enough. Just just waking up to that ought to be enough to kill you. And so, you know, having never actually killed somebody there and then, I'll never know because just the people that he was victimizing. And, and, and so you kind of weigh, you try and weigh the two things up and you say, well, on the one hand, you've got Levi, then you've got, I don't know. I don't know who's worse. I know which one I'd rather fight. But I mean, that's not really what you ask. But can we have that answer? <laughs> well, I definitely Levi. Levi was a coward. Okay, interesting. Levi would run off. They'd say that when he was um, when he was a bouncer, he would whenever it really kicked off, he was nowhere to be seen. We had a couple of questions from our followers and stuff, and and I do as well. Like, what would be your checks or your recommendations for someone, for example, dating online or just general safety tips? That's interesting, actually. I think the best advice always is to to make sure that you've got an escape route. So I don't mean a physical escape route, but to the first time I went on a date with the lady who's now my wife, she, you know, I now know her best friend had this had this sort of code that, that was going to be to to call her up and say you've left the stove on or something, you know, to to get her out of it if she didn't need to be. I think that's still a good idea. I think it's absolutely crucial to make sure you tell everybody, tell people where you're going, what you're doing. I used to have my murder buddy, my other friend who was also online dating at the same time. And we used to, before meeting up with anyone, swap their details, any uh, phone number or pictures that we had and where we met, just in case. Yeah, really sensible. I think it's it's really sensible. Now, I'm sure people of older generations than me would say, well, we didn't have all that. You know, we don't know. To go. Well, no, you didn't. But it's there now. So why not? Why not do it? Why not do the Google search? Why not do the Facebook search? Why not do the Instagram? How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Leftovers or the DMV or house cleaning or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, whatever else and have a look. I think particularly with online dating of any sort, you know, be it, be it you know, actually online or be it Tinder or, or Grindr or whatever else you, you, you use. You, you can The whole thing about kind of social media and the insights, you can be whoever you want to be. And you need to be able to check that and to be able to look at the red flag. And, and don't ignore the red flags, I think, as well. I think sometimes it's easy to get carried away. You're simply getting on really well with somebody. You know, they, you have all the same things and same ideas and interests and, and views. And you want it to work. 
because you wouldn't be there if you didn't want it to work, would you? You know, you want it to be, you want this to be the one, don't you? And so when this red flag pops up, you think, ah, oh, that's okay. So I can, I can live with that. And lastly, I, I think just don't, for God's sake, send any money. There's actually much more chance of you being robbed than being physically harmed. My current wife, as I say, we didn't meet through online dating as such, but it was kind of, we kind of met first of all online because we had a common interest and it was like a forum and we sort of seemed to get on and taking the mickey out of each other and i actually said to her i said to her for god's sake don't google me and what i meant by that was i thought that if she googles me and sees my name across all these murders and she's going to think i'm some kind of complete weirdo because only a weirdo could have a job like that and put up with that and she sort of says well why what's there what's what's you know what are you hiding i said well no it's just that what i used to do for a living was a little bit strange and you might think it's made me a bit strange, but I'd rather you waited and found out for yourself that I was a bit strange. <laughs> well, we love the weirdos here, so. <laughs> but it's a minefield, isn't it? But you you talked about how dating happened previously. People also met more. It, there was a context around the person you're meeting. You were introduced by someone or you at least met them through work or at a location where you knew other people I don't know even when you meet someone in a bar they're there with friends and, and stuff whereas when you're meeting someone online they could literally be everyone anyone like most people lie to a certain extent online yeah yeah it's, it is a minefield even so the chances of becoming a victim as a result of it are really really quite small it's reassuring to hear that from you and and also it was echoed by Steve Gaskin who said the perceived risk is worse than the risk itself. Yeah. And this is really reassuring to hear because, you know, we we sort of assume that as as police officers and all of the, the horrendous things you've seen in your in your lives that you probably would conduct yourself in a more anxious way than we do in our normal lives. So it's actually quite reassuring to hear that uh, the risk is less than what our imagination tells us. It is. And and in the wake of Cousins and Sarah Everard, I, I tried to make this point and think maybe sometimes one or two people got the wrong end of the stick and didn't quite understand the point I was making, or probably it was me not expressing myself clearly. But as terrible as all that obviously was, you're still more at risk in your home than you are walking down the street. Yeah, and this is something we've talked about before as well, that you're more likely to be killed by somebody you know. And we, we were talking yeah. about how is this more or less frightening to us? It probably should be more frightening to us. Yeah, it, it may be. I, I don't really want anyone to be frightened by it. But what I think the point I was trying to make was that if we want to make the greatest inroads and to prevent harm coming, violent harm coming to women and girls, it's actually still worth putting an awful lot of our efforts into into stopping domestic violence. That's why you're more at risk. That that's the point I'm trying to make. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, and and that's not at all to play down the fact of people having to walk home from the station or from the bus with their keys in their hand. I was going to ask you this. It's one of my questions. Yeah, because we do that. We're ready to windmill at any time. Because instinctively, I do this, whether it's day or night, I'm never out at night. I've got kids who hold me hostage, so I'm never out at night. And I was never the type of person to walk alone at night anyways. But the other day I was in my gym car park, which I use my gym as a co-working space rather than a gym. But anyways, I had my keys in my hand there. I was walking with my keys in my hand like a knuckle duster in the day because I do it instinctively and I've done it for about 20 years. So, you know, a lot of this is paranoia. But do you think 
is this not a good idea because then somebody else told me somebody else can use that as a weapon against you? I wouldn't say don't do it because of that. I've done it these days. I, I still drive, but everywhere. But occasionally, if we were going for a drink or something after work, I'd use the train. I walked home from the railway station to home. I'd have my keys and my hand in my pocket. In an ideal world, nobody ought to live like that. We uh, we don't live in an ideal world, and we know we know that that there are people out to do harm to you. There are people out to do harm to men, women, children, boys, girls, animals, anything. You know, taking precautions is always sensible. I come back to the point, I suppose. I, I spent quite a lot of time in various forms during my police service in trying to do something about domestic violence. And, and you know, going back when I was a divisional detective inspector and DCI, um, having things like repeat victimisation schemes. And I think it was the first vulnerable persons unit in the country, certainly in London, that we formed at Chingford, where but basically, I got property detectives together with and got missing persons and domestic violence and elder abuse all under the same sort of umbrella so that it could be investigated properly. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to address that and still think that that's a problem. And it's a problem that is addressable and is, is actually in some ways ought to be more addressable than random violence against women walking in the street. Oh, well, Cheerful, aren't I? Yeah, no, we um, we always have this problem at the end of our episodes where we're <laughs> like, do we just like, and there's the murder, goodbye, you know, or do we think mm. of some, we're, we're still on the lookout for a way of wrapping up our episodes where we don't leave everyone like depressed. Yeah, we haven't found it yet. <laughs> depressed and disillusioned, yeah. Sponsorship by a funeral home or something like that, maybe. <laughs> Deanna, put that on your list of things to do. I'll research that ASAP. <laughs> That's a genius idea. We've been talking about sponsorships. <laughs> genius. Do you know, um, I work in uh, with charities and, and do a lot of fundraising. And I, one of the things that I'm specialized in is legacy fundraising, which, you know, when you leave money in your will. Yes. And I still have yet, I've pitched this to every charity I've ever worked with, but no one's ever taken me up on the idea. But I thought, what a great name for a legacy program for a charity, the pay-as-you-go scheme. <laughs> right thank you thank you you are a wordsmith <laughs> you see, i'd go for that I'd, I'd say yeah let's do it one day one day <laughs> well, we had a, we had a divisional i won't say what the acronym was because it's a bit cheesy but we had a divisional newsletter somewhere where i worked and uh, i i wanted to call it oink as in the noise that a pig makes which i thought was ideal for a police newsletter <laughs> <laughs> it's how you're communicating yeah makes yeah, sense yeah. people would remember it wouldn't they you know we're just ahead of our time colin people are <laughs> yeah, for us. Yeah, our yeah. humor is just far too sophisticated i think that's the problem <laughs> or in my case juvenile i think is the word people often use but there we, oh, we love it <laughs> you know i'm going to tell a story about my dad recently i took him to squires you know in twickenham he loves a good garden center. And I found him outside in the plant bit, like giggling. I was like, and he's not a giggler. I was like, what's happening? And he was like, look at that plant name. And I, I guess it's Pinus. Oh, right. Okay. And I was like, you're 12. You're a, you're a 12 year old boy in there. So you know that I fangirl over you hard, but we were just wondering who do you fangirl over? Oh, that's Tony Hadley. Tony Hadley. Yeah. The singer. Pandal Ballet, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So is that, do you like that kind of music? 
No, I just love the music. I love the way he sings. I love the way he is. I wish I looked like him. Colin, you are a hunk. We wouldn't have you any other way. <laughs> but yeah, he's he's my sort of um, yeah my my man crush. Oh wow, God, wow! I, I would tell him one day, I suppose somehow. But... Do you know him? <laughs> we'll tag him. We'll make a reel about this. We'll make a little video. Call him. Get him on the socials. <laughs> I wouldn't say the Spandau Ballet are my favourite band, but they're the band I've seen live more than any other. Oh, fun. So what would be your theme tune? What do you want your theme tune to be on socials when we post about you? Because we've been using, um, you know, What a Man. <laughs> what a Man, What a Man. Yeah, oh, God, no, yeah, no, I wouldn't choose that myself. The title of this podcast episode is The Real Manhunter, The Real Man. Oh, right, okay. So what would you like us to use for your theme tune? Do you know, I'll tell you what, when when we were making The Real Manhunter, one of the guys at the production company that sort of says, oh, what's your favourite music, Colin? What's the sort of thing you like? And we can try and use something. And I told him, he said, oh, no, I can't use any of that. No. <laughs> and they the, the actual theme tune for The Real Manhunter, which I've sadly I've got as my ringtone on my phone now, but it's, it was quite good and they had it made you know composed and made sort of especially for it i'm sorry but can you also send it to us so it can be our ringtone <laughs> yeah like yeah for when you call us <laughs> yeah <laughs> the music i actually like the best I, I like all sorts of music now but when when i was sort of growing up it was like very esoteric sort of disco funky stuff from the late 70s and early 80s nice and so my favorite ever favorite ever piece of popular music if you like song is by funkadelic it's one nation under a groove okay oh, I love that. Why went funkadelic george clinton yeah i've seen them live do you know that oh, oh me too colin i wonder if we were at the same gig oh, i doubt it because you probably were born then i don't know <laughs> <laughs> it was in the about 78 or 79 i was at school so if you want to put any song on, put that on. Well, we will not decline your request like your TV production company did. <laughs> We're going to follow orders and that's going to be your music. Because yeah. <laughs> as you've seen, we, we post about you a lot on our socials. <laughs> so, Colin, what are you up to? Where can we find you? What can we look forward to? What am I up to? Uh, as, as I said, I've made two films. When I say films, there'll be series and or films. One which was myself, Joe Brandt and Mark Leach reinvestigating some murders from the 1970s. And it's interesting, shall we say. We made some progress. And the other is the three of us again looking at Belfield and what he suggests that he did. Uh, so they'll be coming up, but I don't know where or when because, as I say, they're being hawked around the TV companies as we speak and, and I don't know where they're going to end up. So I did that. I'm about mm, not depends who's listening. If it's if it's anyone from my publishers or my wife, I'm about two thirds of the way through uh, my next book that I've got to write, which is also about the, the the reinvestigation of these old cases from the seventies. And I'm doing that. I've got about another four days, five days, I think, of filming for the Real Manhunter series three to complete. So that should be out in the autumn. Sky are quite good at that. As soon as we finish, they sort of start start broadcasting it. So I think that will be out relatively soon. Beyond that, there are two projects that we are literally waiting for 
the sort of green light from broadcasters or other production companies for. One is a really historical sort of series that I'm going to do with somebody else, with a historian. And I want to do this a series called Tales of the Old Bailey that I'm hoping will get greenlit, which is basically looking back at famous cases for that famous old court and kind of looking at them in the same way as we do with the real manhunter. So always focusing on the investigation, what it's like to investigate these things, what it's like to be uh, the loved one of somebody who's a victim and, and not glorifying the, the criminal. I'm also trying to do a podcast series with a lot of my old colleagues about our experiences in North London in the 1980s. Wow, that would be fascinating. Probably won't get much traction, but... Of course it will. And Colin, we are launching a podcast course, which we will gift to you, because we have brought my expertise, Deanna's expertise. Oh, really? Yeah, we're launching this, so we will gift that. Step by step. It'll be like we're holding your hand. But yeah, if there's anything that we can help advise on, on, you know... Call us. (laughs) Yeah. And we'll have your ringtone when you call us. But yeah, Colin, we've got video tutorials in there for you. Yeah. So we will send send it over to you. You'll be the first person to have a copy of that when it's released, which is mm-hmm. very soon. Oh, thank you. The rest of our listeners have to sign up to our waiting list, which is in our link tree. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people follow you? I don't mean in person. Don't stalk Colin as amazing <laughs> as he is. I mean, online Disney stalking. Well, I've been stalked by worse people. Um, I'm on Instagram at Colin Sutton, but the O's are zeros because I think I think I probably did the proper one but cocked it up somehow and lost the account. But it's Twitter at Colin Sutton, Facebook Colin Sutton, writer and broadcaster or something is my sort of work one. And then selected people get friended on the ordinary Facebook as well, do you, don't they? That's me yesterday. <laughs> All you really see are pictures of golf courses and dogs on there. Rats about Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, Colin, I have to say, probably you're most active. I from from my Disney stalking of you, you're probably most active on Twitter. Yeah, and you posted something recently, and it just made me laugh so much. I hope you remember this. But you posted stuff that your local like recycling tip or whatever was accepting oh, yeah. for recycling, and it was a list of items and a bunch of people going, "Oh, what a good incentive!" Thinking Colin is really into his recycling. But they clearly not looked at the list because on the list of things that were accepted were like kitchen appliances, clothes, blah, blah, blah. And it was, well, it was an alphabetical list. So these were the D's and it was things like drills, dishwashers, you know, all these electrical things. And in the middle of it was dildo. (laughs) I can't imagine a world where anyone wants a recycled dildo. No, and, and, and I think strictly, actually, a dildo doesn't, isn't electrical. I think strictly that's a vibrator, but I didn't want to show too much knowledge <laughs> of these things. People, look at the post before you comment or share. <laughs> Speaking of social media, Colin, whenever you crop up on our social media and you respond to us, we instantly screenshot it and send each other. Look, Colin replied. He knows we exist. The thing about Twitter is that before I did all this sort of TV stuff, that I had to be a bit kind of careful about what I put, I would... I. I kind of, I come from a school of thought that says that things are either funny or they're not. And that, so I can be a bit unfiltered sometimes in. Same. I just have to WhatsApp it now to my friends rather than put it on social media. (laughs) 
But we had a story on the um, the local BBC News up here um, yesterday about the difficulties in getting dentists to visit care homes, which is a real issue. I understand mm. uh, access to dental care itself across the board. But I wanted to say, well, why don't they just post the teeth? <laughs> and it's funny, isn't it? It's not it's, you know, it doesn't hurt anyone, does it? Colin, if you ever need an outlet for your inappropriate jokes, we are the one. Yeah. We're constantly getting ourselves in trouble because we yeah. find relief in humor, uh, which I think yeah. you have to sometimes. Yeah. But not everyone is like that. And so, no. <laughs> and so for some people, it, it might look bonkers. But we appreciate your humor and we love it. Oh, good, good. And we appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you very much. We've probably held you for longer Hostage. than we. But hopefully it's a Stockholm Syndrome situation. But we, you forgot to mention that you're going to be at CrimeCon. Oh, yeah, I'll be at CrimeCon doing something. Yeah, I, or a couple of things. I'm not quite sure what yet. You're doing, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what you're doing, Colin. <laughs> she sent me your itinerary yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I have your itinerary right here. You're on a panel. Yeah. You're also closing the event. Yeah. Yeah, and I imagine you're in the content creators area for some of it. Like, I just do the normal thing, just lounge around and, yeah. 4.15, Colin, Little Heart. Ah. So we'll see you there because we're going. And any one of our listeners, if you're around, then do come along and say hi to us. Yeah. We love meeting the listeners. Are you having a sort of a, are you on Podcast Alley? Or are you just going there? As- no, we're just going. We've never been before. So we wanted to just go and um, observe, like observer status, like Palestine at the UN for the first time. And um, But we're really excited. Well, thank you so much, Colin, for joining us. I'm sorry if I bullied you into it. Thank you. We absolutely loved it. I don't get bullied into anything. You, you asked nicely, and I listened to what you did and 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 thought you were great the way you did that case. I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll support you because I like podcasters, and I think podcasts are, you know, they're, they're my major form of entertainment when I'm driving on my long car journeys now, and so a good one is worth having and a good one is worth taking part in. So. Oh, thank you so much. Because, I mean, you. honestly, I couldn't think of more validation for my work than you giving me positive feedback about the Levi Belfood episode. That's like literally career highlight. I can't imagine anything better, really. <laughs> so thank you so much. I wouldn't say if it weren't true. It's what I felt. So well done. And uh, you still owe me that half pint of whiskey. Oh, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> I haven't forgotten. What do you think your mug is for? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we will let you go. Get back Colin, to your dogs and you. your day. But it's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Colin. We adore you. You are a national treasure. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Yeah. Colin for Prime Minister. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Hey there. Thanks for being a loyal listener. Do you need a new website or want to boost your social media performance? Or do you hate podcast editing? You've tried optimizing your website and social media channels, but you're still not getting the listeners, downloads, and engagement you want? We, the Safi sisters, love helping people with tasks that they hate. We know a thing or two about podcasts, websites, and social media, and we love working with other podcasters and business owners. So why not head over to switchbladesisterssocialclub.com and go to our work with us section. 
We believe in collaboration over competition. A rising tide raises all ships. Bye! How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.